What's up, everybody? Hello, and welcome to episode number 165 of the VK Bros with me again, the one VK Bro, Jason Von Cannell. Uh, Alex is still away in Japan at the moment, but as you can see, fix the camera issues so you guys get to see my beautiful face. You also get to see my uh, beautiful Bronco singlet too. Obviously, this will be dropping on the Monday. The game is coming up on Sunday. So fingers crossed that we've had a positive result. And later on in the show, if you do stick around, I'm going to let you know what my prediction is for the game. Best part about it is it'll come out the day after the game happens, which means you can't lose any money on sports bet from it. So there's a few things I'm going to go through today. I'm going to make today a little bit shorter, a little bit sharper than last week, because uh, there's only three real subjects that I want to go through. The first one, which is obviously big news for our country, happened this week, which was the resignation of Daniel Andrews. The second one is uh, a news story that has happened in the background, which I haven't really seen uh, getting much airtime on mainstream media. And I think it's very, very important to go through, which is related to the Jeffrey Epstein case. And finally, I do want to run through my predictions for this weekend's grand final between the Broncos and the Panthers. But let's get right into it. So I want to start here with Daniel Andrews. So there, I've just, I tried to find a new story that was uh, fairly balanced in its reporting. Because obviously Daniel Andrews was on this week. It was fairly abrupt. Uh, happened on Tuesday and then at 5pm Wednesday he was officially gone. And his legacy being left behind is obviously going to be extremely different depending on which side of the aisle that you sit on. There's a lot of people who are very pro Daniel Andrews and everything that he's done in that state. Obviously he has been a massive... Uh, he's He's... He's been a massive mover and shaker in that state. He's changed a lot of things. He's brought in a lot of social programs. Uh, he's obviously done... He wanted to have his big build, so his legacy, in his opinion, will be all of the massive infrastructure projects that he was working on. But on the other hand, too, he's also brought in some pretty massive things such as debt, uh, social division, etc., etc. But I just want to start out with... And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because... As much as we focused on Daniel Andrews, especially during the pandemic, at the end of the day, now that he's out of office, he's gone and I nothing him. And I really do hope that uh, he does see some ramifications for his actions, especially during COVID, because, you know, just because all of these people are resigning doesn't mean that uh, the investigations won't be happening. And part of the theory around why his resignation happened when it did is because, like you might you might recall, we, we reported on the show a few months ago that we were hearing whispers about his pending resignation uh, all the way back earlier in the year. Uh, they thought it was going to be set for about July, and then the Commonwealth Games got cancelled, and there was a lot of big things that happened around that period, and it sort of got pushed back. And people were starting to wonder whether or not it was actually going to happen. And there is a theory that he was literally just waiting it out to see what level of inquiry Anthony Albanese announced into the COVID response and when he found out that it was just going to be an inquiry and that state actions were going to be exempted from it that he was comfortable enough to jump ship at that point but who knows who knows if that's the the reason for it but I want to start off with this so this is an article uh from the Guardian uh and it's an analysis. So Daniel Andrews remolded the state of Victoria but the wheels were beginning to wobble written by Margaret Simons 
Time will tell if the Premier's legacy will be his huge infrastructure projects and social reforms or his exercise of power and debt burden. Uh, Daniel Andrews has been one of the most transformational leaders in Australia's history. Victorians will be living with his legacy for decades, encountering it when they drive, catch public transport, raise their children, and, for some, even at the point of death. His main legacy is already clear, the huge infrastructure and public transport projects that will mould life in Australia's fastest-growing capital for the century ahead. If they work, they will keep Melbourne livable, despite the pressures of a booming population. Added to this record are the social reforms. Under Andrews, Victoria became the first state to legalise voluntary assisted dying. It held a landmark Royal Commission into Family Violence. It was the first state to start the process of negotiating a treaty with First Nations people, far ahead of any other jurisdiction. It also decriminalised street-based sex work. As the previous federal government stepped away from investment in early childhood development, the Andrews government made kindergarten free from next year for three- and four-year-olds. It added a new year of universal prep for four-year-olds from 2025. Andrews has also distinguished himself by picking the right moment to go. The government was moulded in his image, and there was a lot to like about that. He is a powerful man with courage, a vision for the state, and strong sense of public service. So you are sort of hearing the uh, ideological bent that this article is written by but he was also a big tree blocking out sunlight he prevented some things from growing on the other hand he allowed and even encouraged other things to fester in the dark he pushed on relentlessly gutting political enemies sometimes accommodating and sometimes crashing through the pathologies of labor factions through all this he retained public popularity but the wheels were beginning to wobble over the last couple of years the words tightly held have come up in almost every conversation about andrew's government decisions it reflects the way in which major policy has been developed by a small group of his most trusted people, developed in what one observer described as a black box, with even government ministers excluded, unless they were in the increasingly tiny circle of the favoured. The politicisation of the public service, its lack of ability and sometimes the will to stand up to the Premier, was becoming one of the themes of the government. As a result, vision has increasingly collided with poor judgement and management. The government was beginning to look tired, and the problems have been mounting up. Take the decision to get into the Commonwealth Games, and then the decision to cancel them. A fitting symbol of the final days of the Andrews era might well be the tender documents for the Commonwealth Games Aquatic Centre at Geelong, which required the, the successful contractor to build three pools. After the Games, and with just two weeks of use, two of them were to be filled in to be replaced by sports courts. Through scandal and resignation, there has been an extraordinarily high turnover of ministers, 17 of the 22 members of Andrew's original ministry have quit or been sacked over the last nine years. Some deserve to go, but others were among the best thinkers in the government. They were once Andrew's trusted colleagues and friends, and then they were frozen out. In the next few decades, we'll find out more about the impact on government decision-making of those departures. For example, what is the quality of management in the housing package? Have the rights and land transfers along railway lines been set up to reflect the public interest, or was that set aside? There is construction everywhere in Victoria now. Road and rail projects, including the Metro Tunnel, level crossing removals and the Westgate Tunnel, as well as school upgrades. In his last week, Andrews added another example, the housing package including the demolition over 30 years of the 44 public housing towers that have punctuated the inner city suburbs since the 1970s. It is an enormous project that will change the character of the inner city. The towers are the legacy of a time when public sector debt was not a sin and a big role for state government was assumed. Andrews has been in that tradition and there'll be no escaping his impact, including the debt burden he leaves behind. Assuming future governments stick to the program, Andrews' big projects will still be dominating the state when most of those involved in present-day decision-making are retired or dead. 
Dealing with all this, introducing changes if needed, will probably now be the work of Andrew's deputy and likely successor as Premier Jacinta Allen, which has since uh, been confirmed as well. She has been one of the most closely involved in the black box of policymaking, a quintessential Andrews insider. She was Minister for the Commonwealth Games Delivery as well as the Transport and Infrastructure. In other words, right at the heart of the most consequential decisions. Has she got the capacity to refresh and reset? Can she, will she, build a more transparent, humble, consultative government? If so, Labor may well be in government for decades, given that the Liberal Party is nowhere more hapless than in Victoria. The record of long-standing premiers in Australia is mixed, to put it mildly. Anyway, I'm just going to leave it there, because not a whole lot more relevant in that story. So, obviously, that article is very much focusing on his legacy as an infrastructure builder in that state. And... Look, infrastructure is important, let's be honest. Uh, that's what your tax dollars are supposed to go towards. It's supposed to go towards building infrastructure, hospitals, roads, uh, you know, making sure that a city can keep up with a booming population base, for example. But that article left out an awful lot of the negatives that will be left behind in his legacy. So for a start, they barely mentioned the debt burden. So Daniel Andrews in his 10, year, 10 or so years as Premier has actually quadrupled Victoria's debt. So he, when he took over, the debt was sitting at about $50 billion. And now it's um, projected to hit about $260 billion by 2025. That's all happened in 10 years. That's also happened in the background of record low interest rates. So I understand there should be no government that operates in a surplus, really. Because at the end of the day, you want the government to be spending that money on building and creating a better quality of life for its citizens. That's what you want. You don't want them to have to be penny-pinching all the time. However, to quadruple the debt during record low interest rates and then leave that giant debt burden behind as interest rates are now starting to go through the roof, it, it people will be paying for this for literally generations. Uh, Victoria's debt is larger than Queensland, New South Wales and Tasmania's all put together. And whilst they are the second most populous state in the country, the, the population down there does not exceed those three states put together, clearly. Uh, we can also talk about the juxtaposition of Daniel Andrews' uh, apparent uh, social care factor, let's call it. So... Daniel Andrews is very much in the left side of politics. He was he's obviously very pro LGBTIQA plus, uh, very anti Nazis, for example. It was his government that recently brought in the new laws to ban any sort of Nazi symbolism, which, as I mean, I'm not pro Nazi, but I'm definitely pro free speech. If people want to put a symbol up, I don't really care. And at the end of the day, uh, if you have people in your society who do uh, adhere to those Nazi values. I'd prefer that they actually show us who they are so you can stay away from those people. Uh, obviously, the, mo the biggest and the most recent uh, issues are the COVID response and uh, the Commonwealth Games debacle. So let's just analyze these for a little bit. Let's start with the money side of things. So we just talked about the debt burden. With the Commonwealth Games, the decision to go... Um, sort of bring the games to the state and then to cancel them up after he had already won the election. The minimum cost for that is $388 million. 
the maximum cost is we, we don't even know what that's going to be that was just the the compensation payment that had to be paid to the uh, it's not the icc the whoever the the body that maintains the commonwealth games it doesn't actually account for any of the contractors that have already been paid uh or, or contracts that have been done that can't be cancelled and therefore need to they need to be paid out of these contracts so we saw something similar in queensland with uh during COVID with the uh well camp quarantine facility where when they weren't using it anymore the queensland government was still contracted for another 12 months to rent that facility and they were like oh we can't break the contract so that costs an extra however many tens of millions of dollars over 12 months so we're, we're not going to know the full impact of just a commonwealth games cancellation then you've got the recent cancellation of the east west link tunnel that was a billion dollars to cancel that so you look you're literally looking at an absolute minimum of 1.5 billion dollars in the last few months spent to literally build nothing that's a pretty big faux pas but by all measures the COVID response in Victoria, in my opinion, is the legacy that he leaves behind. And it's the thing that people just need to not forget about. Because the absolute destruction of human rights that happened in that state, now it happened all around our country, but Victoria was definitely the harshest. They had the longest lockdowns in the country, and at one point in time they did hold a record for the longest lockdowns in the world. They also had the worst COVID outcomes in our country. So all of their COVID response uh, mechanisms they put into place clearly didn't actually work. You also look at the fact that, uh, so they, you know, he brought in things like voluntary assisted dying. That's great. He's also put a safe injecting room near a primary school. So now there's primary school children who are regularly seeing uh, druggos passing out in the street, which is not ideal for anyone either. Uh, he's been investigated four or five times by IBAC, multiple times being questioned behind closed doors, and we'll never see the results of those. Uh, he had the red shirts rotting scandal under in his name. Like, we've been through many, many different things uh, in his past, and like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on it. At the end of the day, he is gone. Jacinta Allen is taking over as uh, the Premier now. You know, is this just another case of a female being given a poison chalice just like Qantas, we just covered how Qantas's uh, new CEO was a female, and now they've given Jacinta Allen this absolute basket case of a state with massive amounts of debt. All of these programs that he got to announce, which means he gets all the good juju from announcing all these things, like the eight hundred thousand dollars, uh, eight hundred thousand homes he promised to build in the next ten years, which he made that announcement like two weeks ago, and now she's going to have to be the one who's like, "Sorry, we can't afford that. Sorry, we can't afford this." And she might slide straight down that uh, glass waterfall that we've also discussed in the past. So anyway, good riddance to bad rubbish and uh, happy days for Victoria. Thank God he's gone. All right. The second story that I wanted to go into, and this is, to me is far more interesting, is a story that sort of happened in the background whilst Russell Brand has been dominating your media. So again, just to confirm, this is a week later now since uh, we recorded the last video. At this stage, there are still no actual charges that have been uh, pressed against Russell Brand. Uh, he is basically operating as usual. He is still posting new videos on YouTube, even though they've completely demonetized his channel. They're still running ads on them though. So 
you'll know that uh, YouTube is still making money out of Russell Brand's content. They're just not letting Russell make any money out of his content. He's still broadcasting on Rumble, so he's sort of back to business as usual. And this news story sort of happened in the background, uh, which caught my attention, and I think it should catch yours as well. JP Morgan to pay $75 million to settle lawsuit over ties with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, the bank said the majority of the settlement, $55 million, will go toward local charities and victim assistance. The rest goes to legal fees. So this is from NBCNews.com. Uh, and this happened on the 27th of September, so two days ago. So let's read some of the details. JP Morgan Chase has reached a $75 million settlement with the US Virgin Islands over a lawsuit accusing the nation's largest bank of facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking enterprise for 15 years, according to statements released by the bank and territory. The bank said the majority of the settlement, $55 million, will go toward local charities and victim assistance. Meanwhile, the remaining $20 million will cover legal fees. The bank said the settlement doesn't involve admissions of liability. However, it regrets any association with Epstein and would never have continued doing business with, with him if it believed he was using the bank in any way to commit heinous crimes, end quote. A J.P. Morgan Chase spokesperson added, We are pleased that the USVI will use settlement proceeds to enhance the infrastructure and capabilities of their law enforcement to prevent and combat human trafficking and other crimes in their territories. The US Virgin Islands said that $10 million from the settlement would create a fund to provide mental health services for Epstein's survivors. US Virgin Islands Attorney General Ariel Smith said, We are proud to have stood alongside the survivors through this litigation, and this settlement reflects our continued commitment to them. With this constructive resolution of this groundbreaking litigation, we look forward to building our community, uh, helping our community move forward and to building a new relationship with JP Morgan. The US Virgin Islands sued the Wall Street giant last year, alleging the bank turned a blind eye toward Epstein's conduct and continued to finance him. The settlement comes as the case was set to go to trial in Manhattan Federal Court in October. Now that is the key here. JP Morgan Chase was Epstein's banker for 15 years, starting in 1998. The bank terminated, terminated him as a client in 2013. In June, JP Morgan Chase agreed to pay $290 million to settle a similar lawsuit filed by Epstein's survivors. JP Morgan Chase said it had also reached a confidential agreement with its former executive Jez Stanley, uh, Staley to resolve the bank's claims against him. The financial institution sued Staley in March, saying he should be held liable for any financial damages the bank would have to pay for, from lawsuits related to Epstein. And attorney for Staley didn't uh, immediately respond to NBC News' request for comment. Staley has, accused, has called the accusations baseless, but expressed regret for his relationship with Epstein. Epstein was convicted of procuring a child for prostitution in 2008. He died by suicide at a Manhattan Correctional Center in 2019 where he was being held on federal sex trafficking charges. All right. So a few things about this that are very, very interesting. Number one, not a whole lot of press that's come out about this. And just let's just analyze a few, a few parts of this story. Number one, they still had a relationship with Jeffrey Epstein after he was convicted of child sex trafficking in 2008. So as the article uh, states... They cancelled him as a customer in 2013. That was five years later. So juxtapose that against the Russell Brand accusations from last week. Russell Brand has essentially been debanked by YouTube. YouTube has removed his ability to make money from the platform based on nothing but four anonymous allegations. No charges laid, no nothing. 
JP Morgan and Chase Bank was quite happy to have Jeffrey Epstein as a customer for five more years after being convicted of child sex trafficking. Now, if you were running a business and one of your main main clients, because he would be one of their main clients with the amount of money that would have been, would have been funneled through his accounts, and in a high-profile case, one of your main clients was charged with child sex trafficking. So trafficking implies that you are taking the child from one jurisdiction and moving them to another. Would you not assume that there might be uh, some evidence of wrongdoing in his accounts that you control, that you might just look into just to make sure everything that he's doing with your bank is above board? You would think that a regular uh, institution that's trying to run itself properly would do such a thing. But obviously, that wasn't the case. The next thing about this which is extremely interesting is, again, the settlement doesn't involve any admissions of liability. So this is a real big issue that we have uh, in our society at the moment, where essentially all of these giant businesses which have all the money in the world, and, and we covered a few months ago uh, how JP Morgan and Chase Bank was actually given money by the US government to buy out some of the banks that were failing a few months ago. And they're just becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. So they've got all the money in the world. So they're literally just paying money to make all of these things go away and not actually forced to have any admissions of liability. So there's no accountability because all this does is just pull stuff out of their bottom line. And I'm sure that they've got accountants that are so good that they can just write these things off as a tax deduction at the end of the day. Um, on that note, I just brought up to, let me just switch through to the next article. So here's an example too. So this is from November 24th, 2020. JP Morgan Chase pays $250 million penalty over weak controls in its wealth management division. So JP Morgan Chase agreed on Tuesday to pay a $250 million fine after one of its US regulators found a pattern of misconduct in its asset and wealth management division. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency said in a release that the New York-based bank's risk management controls were deficient and the firm couldn't avoid conflicts of interest in the business. Neither the bank nor regulator gave much detail about the potential wrongdoing and conflicts of interest that garnered the fine. In late 2015, JP Morgan agreed to pay more than $300 million in fines after the Securities and Exchange Commission found that the bank failed to disclose that it put some clients into higher-fee products created by the firm. Uh, blah, 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 blah. So this is just another example of systemic wrongdoing done by the bank. Uh, but if we also scroll down here a little bit, it was the second time in two months that the bank agreed to pay a massive settlement to US regulators over how it conducts business. In late September, JP Morgan agreed to pay $920 million to settle investigations from three federal agencies over its role in the manipulation of global markets for metals and US treasuries. JP Morgan hinted that a fine may be coming early this month, but neither the bank nor regulator gave much detail about the potential wrongdoing. Blah, 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 that's just got to repeat from the bit at the top. So you're seeing right here, systemic breaking of the law done by this bank and at the end of the day all they do is they pay to make that problem go away none of the directors are held responsible none of the ceos are held responsible they just pay it and and off you go into the ether so there is no accountability and as you can see if if someone does the wrong thing and there is zero accountability on them personally 
and the the negatives of that, i.e. the fines, are paid for out of someone else's pocket, of course they're going to do it again. It's obviously highly profitable to do things and, and to run their business in the way they do. So why would they change anything? Plus, the US government, they don't want to crack down any harder. They don't want to have any criminal penalties because at the end of the day, they just get to keep making money out of this company too every time they find them. But getting back to the current case. So look, $250 million for uh, wheat controls and its wealth management division uh, juxtaposed against $75 million for uh, facilitating child sex trafficking. Some might argue that uh, this, the sex trafficking offence probably should be worth a lot more than uh, just wheat controls in a wealth management division, but hey, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I just wanted to bring it back to this. So you might remember from months ago, when this court case was announced, the US Virgin Islands uh, district attorney was fired just days after starting this lawsuit. So let's just refresh your memory. This is from the 2nd of January, 2023. US Virgin Islands district attorney fired days after suing JP Morgan Chase over Jeffrey Epstein ties. Virgin Islands Governor Albert Bryan said he had relieved Dennis George of her duties amid reports he was unaware of a lawsuit filed against JP Morgan Chase. Uh, the US Virgin Islands top prosecutor has lost her job days after filing a lawsuit accusing financial giant JP Morgan Chase of turning a blind eye to Jeffrey Epstein's multi-decade sex trafficking operation. Attorney General Denise George filed a lawsuit in Manhattan last week, alleging that the Wall Street giant provided and pulled the levers through which recruiters and victims of Epstein's offending were paid in the court filing, according to Bloomberg. On New Year's Eve, Virgin Islands Governor Albert Bryan confirmed to several news outlets on the island that Ms. George had been removed from her role amid reports that he had been blindsided by the lawsuit. I relieved Denise Denise George of her duties as Attorney General this weekend, Mr. Bryan said in a statement to The Independent. I thank her for her service uh, to the people of the territory during the past four years as Attorney General and wish her the best in her future endeavours. The Governor's spokesperson, Richard Modder, told The Independent he was not at liberty to discuss details on personnel matters. The Attorney General's office did not immediately reply to requests for comment. Uh, Okay. In December, Ms. George announced Epstein's estate had agreed to pay $105 million to the US Virgin Islands government to settle a lawsuit that the late pedophile used his private island in the archipelago for sex trafficking. In the lawsuit filed against J.P. Morgan Chase last week, Ms. George alleged J.P. Morgan clearly knew it was not complying with federal regulations in regard to Epstein-related accounts. Human trafficking was the principal business of the accounts Epstein maintained at J.P. Morgan. A J.P. Morgan spokesperson told The Independent they had no comment on the lawsuit. The U.S. Virgin Islands had requested a jury trial for charges, including participating in sex trafficking. So this is where things start to get a little bit more interesting the, the deeper that you dig. So for the, uh, the governor of the Virgin Islands to come out and say that he was blindsided by this lawsuit, it seems pretty strange that after achieving this $105 million settlement from Epstein's uh, estate over child sex trafficking through the Virgin Islands, that it, it seems very logical to me that you would then next move to the bank that was helping facilitate those payments. So for him to say he was blindsided and use that as his excuse to remove her is pretty questionable in my opinion. But it gets deeper from there. Uh, 
So this is this article's written a little bit more uh, of a of an opinion PC, but it's sort of piecing some things together. So again, U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George fired days after accusing J.P. Morgan Chase of aiding Jeffrey Epstein. Coincidence? The main reason why I brought this one up was because there was a few more things in here about the case itself. So it says. Uh, Governor Albert Bryan did not provide a reason for relieving George of her duties in a statement on Sunday, saying only that she would be replaced by Assistant Attorney General Carol Thomas Jacobs. Governor Spokesman Richard Motter did not return a message for comment, nor did Executive Assistant to the Attorney General Jennifer Springett. In the lawsuit filed against J.P. Morgan Chase on December 27, the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands alleges the company knowingly facilitated, sustained, and concealed the human trafficking network operated by Jeffrey Epstein from his home and base in the Virgin Islands and financially benefited from this participation, directly or indirectly, by failing to comply with federal banking regulations. It also alleges that the company concealed wire and cash transactions. Human trafficking was the principal business of the accounts Epstein maintained at J.P. Morgan. The lawsuit reads, J.P. Morgan turned a blind eye to evidence of human trafficking over more than a decade because of Epstein's own financial footprint and because of the deals and clients that Epstein brought and promised to bring to the bank. But it gets even more interesting because, again, around the time of this lawsuit, you may remember uh, me raising the point that US President Joe Biden just so happened to visit the Virgin Islands just as his court case kicked off, or, or at least was brought against JP Morgan Chase. Now, it's very interesting to see how different media companies covered this visit. So let's start with the Associated Press. So the Associated Press reported, Biden arrives in US Virgin Islands to relax between holidays. To relax between holidays. Uh, This was from the 28th of December, 2022. Kings Hill, US Virgin Islands. President Joe Biden on Tuesday traveled to a place very familiar to him, the US Virgin Islands, to enjoy some downtime and warmer weather and to ring in a new year with family. The President and his wife, First Lady Jill Biden, flew from Washington on Tuesday to St. Croix, one of three islands that make up the U.S. territory in the Caribbean. Uh, St. John and St. Thomas are the other two islands. The Bidens were joined by their daughter, Ashley, and her husband, Howard Crane, as well as grandchildren, Natalie and Hunter, whose father was the President's late son, Beau. St. Croix is a tropical getaway that Biden has been getting away to at least since he was Vice President from 2009 to 2017. So... The Associated Press here is obviously trying to normalize the fact that Joe Biden visits the Virgin Islands. If we go to this next one from slaynews.com, which obviously is probably a little bit more right-leaning, from the 2nd of January 2023, so a few days later, US Virgin Islands Attorney General fired during Biden visit after vowing to expose Epstein's powerful friends. The Attorney General of the U.S. Virgin Islands has been fired just days after vowing to expose Jeffrey Epstein's powerful friends and accomplices. Denise George was reportedly terminated by the territory's governor during Democrat President Joe Biden's official visit to the islands. Very convenient, huh? So, again, just to summarize where we're at in relation to, or juxtaposition to, the Russell Brand case from last week. We are now four years removed from the conviction of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell on child sex trafficking charges. At this point, those charges that they've been convicted of are still trafficking children 
for sex to nobody because we have never seen Jeffrey Epstein's client list ever. That was four years ago that those convictions were recorded and they were both put in prison. And then obviously Jeffrey Epstein died by suicide shortly after. Now you've got a lawsuit. So the, the, J, the JP Morgan and Chase lawsuit was due to go to a full jury trial from October, so next month. And as anyone who's been following the channel will understand from the amount of lawsuits we've covered, is when it goes to a full trial, that's when you've got a thing called discovery. So that is when an attorney general who is motivated to find out the financial wrongdoings or other wrongdoings of JP Morgan and Chase, they would have been able to request so many different documents. And I would assume it would have been things like uh, lists of accounts that Jeffrey Epstein uh, was regularly receiving payment or sending payment to, for example. So now we've just had this settlement come through, $75 million, which is chump change for a bank like JP Morgan and Chase. They're, they're giant. They're one of the biggest banks in the world, if not the biggest. So they pay $75 million. So essentially that trial doesn't go ahead. You've also got the fact that Joe Biden, who has a history of removing prosecutors, state prosecutors, i.e., the state prosecutor from Ukraine, he got removed, that we also covered on the show a few weeks ago, uh, whilst he was vice president, to basically cover for Hunter Biden and the company Burisma that he was on the board of. So he's got, he's got, uh, it's his MO. Take out the prosecutor, put in someone else who is solid, as he referred to in that famous clip. So it's wild that none of this stuff is really being covered in the media. All you're seeing is Russell Brand, sexual allegations, or the sexual impropriety of Russell Brand. So I believe very much so that this is the story that was lingering in the background, which they were using the Russell Brand story to cover up. And and you can probably tell that because I, I guarantee, and, well, I don't guarantee, if you keep an eye on it, in a week or two, the Russell Brand stuff will be completely forgotten about, and everyone will even stop talking about him because I think the more they talk about someone like Russell Brand, who is still out there actively publishing his own content, uh, the more eyeballs are driving towards him and he's saying a message that the mainstream doesn't want you to hear. So they, they'll just cut off his airtime because he served his purpose. So that's the big story. Now, the final part of the show that I want to cover is, uh, I'm recording this on Friday, the big grand finals happening this Sunday, my beloved Brisbane Broncos going up against the pretty pretty solid favourites, the Penrith Panthers, who are looking at doing a three-peat of premierships, three premierships straight. Uh, I'm massively biased towards the Broncos, obviously. So here's my rundown, and I'm going to make this very, very brief. This is how I believe the game is going to go. And I may look like a massive goose at the end of this, but I don't really care. I, th I see the Broncos winning, obviously, and this is how I think it's going to happen. The Broncos forward pack is, in my opinion, the best forward pack in the league and one of the only forward packs that can easily match it with the Panthers, if not uh, go past the Panthers, because the Panthers front row is exceptional. James Fisher-Harris, Moses Leota, they are an exceptional front row pairing, but so are Payne Haas and Tom Flegler, and then you've also got Paddy Carrigan in there too. So I think the Broncos will get a roll on early, and they will go up 
probably maybe one or two early tries, which will start putting pressure on the Panthers. Now, one thing, one chink in Nathan Cleary's armor, because Nathan Cleary is is probably the best half playing in the game at the moment, but one chink that we have seen in his armor is he doesn't operate anywhere near as well as every halfback does when obviously number one their forward pack's being dominated but number two when he gets behind on the scoreboard Nathan Cleary is in my opinion the greatest front running half in in rugby league history if he gets in front he makes every decision right he's got the the perfect kicking game he can put pressure on teams he can get repeat sets he's the man when it comes to front running but we have seen in the past, particularly at high-level games, i.e. State of Origin, when he's had another team putting pressure on him, and then you've also got the scoreboard putting pressure on him too because he gets behind, parts of his game do tend to start to fall apart. His kicking game uh, in the Origin series has not been as like, anywhere near as good as what it is uh, during regular season games. And we saw that Dally Cherry Evans, who is an old, wily halfback, outplayed Nathan Cleary multiple times in this year's Origin Series. And who do the Broncos have? Adam Reynolds, an old, wily halfback with a great kicking game, very cool under pressure, has won premierships himself uh, with South Sydney. And I believe that we can put the pressure on Cleary early, and if we get that early lead, Adam Reynolds is a type of old, wily halfback who is going to be able to sort of suffocate him out of the game. Now, don't get me wrong, like... I don't think that it's going to be a walkover, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Broncos end up winning by eight to 10 points. I think that we have got the absolute game breakers in our team, like Reese Walsh. The The forward pack, all these games are won in the forwards. So the forward pack is the number one mo- most important. Payne Haas, Tom Flegler, Patrick Carrigan, those three guys are going to get a roll on. And if they throw some offloads like they did in the Warriors game, we're going to keep getting that second phase play, which builds more and more and more pressure. I believe we hit the front early and we stay there for the rest of the game. That's my prediction. I'm probably going to look really, really silly for throwing that out there. But let's go, baby. Broncos. And just to finish off, I'm going to leave you with this. Thanks for joining us, guys. See you next week.